Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Diplomats from nearly 200 countries will gather in Dubai this week for the United Nations annual climate talks. A conference known as... Yes, the diplomatic caravan is rolling into Dubai for this year's COP, the United Nations round of global climate talks. Scores of world leaders and luminaries, including King Charles and the Pope, and government ministers from nearly 200 countries are set to attend, alongside an estimated 70,000 delegates. The former governor of the Bank of England and Canada, Mark Carney, knows a thing or two about climate talks. He's been intimately involved at Glasgow's COP26 when he advised Britain's then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Now he's the UN's special envoy for climate finance and action, and he's throwing down a gauntlet. Let's see who stands up in the UAE at COP amongst the oil and gas companies and countries, and we'll start to judge who's performing and who isn't. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. And along with us at Politico, Mark Carney is heading to COP28 to bang the financial drum for the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. As a power player at the talks, he'll be encouraging CEOs, financiers, as well as prime ministers and presidents to put their money where their mouths are. Later, I'll be joined by our own power panel of experts, and they'll have a deeper dive into his argument. He's right that we're seeing a lot more investment into clean, but there's still a lot of work to do. I think that's where he maybe was a little bit bright eyed and you know not exactly grounded in where we're at. I think this has to be the last cop of this size. I'm not sure that many countries can afford to host the kind of jamboree as well as the negotiations which cops have turned into. But first, Mark Carney, welcome to Powerplay. Great to be here, Anne. Thanks for having me on. We're heading to COP. A lot of global leaders, business folk, NGOs will be there. And there will be talk of the Last Chance Saloon because there always is at events like these, the Last Chance to limit the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. What's at stake to your mind and why should people believe it matters? A lot of them will be thinking, well, I heard this the last time and the time before that too. Well, I think uh, perhaps if they had heard a variant of that uh, a few years ago, for example, at Glasgow, you and I would have been uh, would have been there. Then what we've had in the intervening years is more evidence of the consequences of not acting fast enough or to great extent enough. We've had a multiplication of extreme weather events. We've had highest average temperatures. You know, I'm coming to COP from my native Canada, and we had forest fires that were three times the average, more than the usual emissions of the country as a whole, just from the forest fires alone and the, the consequences of all that. So part of it is the urgency continues to mount. 
that's on the negative side of the ledger. That's why we should be there. More positively, what is beginning to happen is the consequences of some of those previous meetings. Uh, For example, since Glasgow, the amount of investment on an annual basis in clean energy has gone from a little less than a trillion dollars, which is a big number, roughly at that time, about the same as the level in oil and gas and coal and other fossil fuels, and now it's just under $2 trillion on an annual basis, almost twice as much on an, on an annual basis as in conventional uh, energy. So it's it's more urgent because we're seeing the impacts. They're real. They're affecting people day in, day out in the UK, in the US, around the world. But we're also beginning to make more progress. And we've got to, we've got to press on that progress at this COP. I'm going to come a little later to what that money can and can't do. So we will return to that and to climate finance, which I know is one of your big roles and concerns. But this summit is being hosted by a leading petrostate. It is chaired by the head of its national oil company, Sultan al-Jaba. Greta Thunberg, no less, has called it completely ridiculous for this role to be taken on by a country with that profile and that exposure to oil and gas, indeed a leading role in it. Is she right? Well, um, COP is a global process and all countries need to be involved in it. All countries need to be judged on what their contribution is. And that goes for uh, a country that is a leading uh, oil and gas producer, also a a leading renewable producer. And I think one of the values of, uh, you know, the COP president is the COP president um, and it's our job to make it work. And what part of the leadership of this COP president has been to take uh, the energy industry, the oil and gas industry uh, head on? and challenge that industry. And this will be part of what we'll be looking for at COP is who steps up amongst the oil and gas companies and commits to not doing something in the distant future, but doing something over the next few years, getting rid of methane or methane, if you're in the UK, as it's pronounced, by 2030 in in your production and doubling the energy efficiency of the production distribution of oil and gas. That sounds a little uh, abstract, but if everyone did that, all the oil and gas companies around the world, all the countries committed to it and did it in the next few years, that would almost amount to 10% of global emissions. Now, I don't think everyone's going to do it, but let's see who stands up in the UAE at COP uh, amongst the oil and gas com- companies and countries, uh, and we'll start to judge who's uh, who's performing and who isn't. The international community is divided as COP28 gets underway. All producing nations like the host, UAE, Saudi Arabia, US, Russia and China talk about phasing down fossil fuel production. Others, including the EU, want it phased out completely. And that's the language that they're advocating for using. We've had the EU Commissioner for Climate Action saying the language needs to be clearer and it needs to talk about phasing out. Is he right? Well, let me let me take the International Energy Agency, which uh, which provides uh, probably the most rigorous uh, forecasts of what needs to happen, what is happening, what needs to happen. What they say is that to get to that one and a half degree objective to minimize the damage from climate change, oil and gas production needs to phase down from just under 100 million barrels per day today to about 25 million barrels per day by 2050. So that's what they say. Other things, a bunch of other things have to happen at the same time. At a minimum, what's clear is there needs to be a a series of uh, investments and actions uh, that take place, including in the oil and gas sector, to begin to phase down meaningfully the production of oil and gas. I mean, 
we can argue about where things are in 2050. I'm a little more focused, and I think the COP presidency is a little more focused on what happens over the course of the next five years between now and the end of the decade. This is the decisive period. Um, and let's get that slope moving in the right direction. If I can make one other point, uh, and which is uh, two years ago, you and I saw each other at Glasgow. Uh, the expectation at the time, given what countries were doing, was that we would not reach the peak levels of oil production, oil, oil consumption, gas consumption, even coal, until the late 2030s into the 2040s. That's how bad things were. Now, the view is that all of those will peak before the end of this decade. Now, that's a forecast. It doesn't mean it necessarily happens but directionally, it shows you how much things have changed. They need to change again by that or, uh, you know, similar order of magnitude uh, to get on track. It's absolutely right when you say a couple of years ago and Glasgow, and that's where the, the caravan uh, went on that occasion. And that just reminded me of really how the world has changed and in many ways for the worse since. We now have two wars raging, one in Europe, of course, in Ukraine, another in the Middle East, in the Israel-Gaza conflict. That is consuming a massive amount of leaders' attention. And you know that with your political background, how much politicians, whatever else that they've said or committed to in the fight against global warming, also tend to get distracted and that there is an increased demand for fossil fuels. What do you think the impact is of this time of conflict? Well, I think, um, let me take the first, uh, which is with respect to um, uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the lesson that um, certainly European countries have taken, and I think most of the world has taken, is you know, we've had a fossil fuel based energy system for about a century, uh, and it's proved unreliable, unaffordable. Uh, you look at the fuel bills that uh, Europeans, UK uh, citizens have faced over the last 18 months, um, and it's unsustainable, unsustainable from a planetary perspective. So we should accelerate the transition to a cleaner energy system as opposed to buttress the old system. That's what's happening there. You've seen an acceleration of investment and action on clean energy for reasons of energy security for reasons of greater affordability for citizens, so for near-term returns, as well as uh, obviously for longer-term sustainability. And to varying degrees, you see the same direction of travel around the world, but to varying degrees uh, for those specific reasons. If I were to take um, uh, the uh, tragedy in, uh, in, in Israel and Gaza, I think the one thing that I would read across from that situation to climate, what we're talking about, is uh, the role of what some would call middle powers in, uh, one would hope, uh, some resolution of this situation. So the role of uh, of Saudi Arabia, the role of uh, the Emirates, the role of Qatar playing in that. And it goes to a basic point here, which is, I think sometimes in the G7, there still is a legacy of, of, of thinking that we're going to solve an issue ourselves uh, and once we come up with a solution, others will implement it. And that's just not the way the world works uh, anymore, which is another reason why having a call presidency like the UAE today or this for the next uh, few weeks this this year is very much a middle power power that bridges the north and south and Brazil as the call presidency in two years time. Uh, we will be in Brazil. Uh, that's hugely important to get the kind of global consensus that's necessary to address what is a global issue. But if we look at something like the decision in the UK to explore new oil and gas fields in the North Sea, for instance, off the Scottish coast, 
that would always be a controversial decision, but it probably got across the line under Rishi Sunak's government because of the argument right now we need all kinds of energy security and we can't afford to rule out choices like that, which maybe in a more benign international environment might have been avoided. Do you think that's a mistake? Uh, well, I don't know that the energy security argument holds for oil from the North Sea, given the uh, given the trade routes and other access to oil into the UK. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Do you think Rishi Sunak undermined the UK's position by pulling back on net zero targets or pushing them a bit further out? I think the UK started uh, from a very strong position built up over the years of having a clear climate framework uh, embedded in law, the first major economy to have uh, the net zero objective embedded in law, a very clear framework again, if I can use that term, I can with Politico, I can use that, Uh, having the climate change committee, which judges and marks the government's homework in terms of how well policies are working and where the gaps are, make suggestions around that. So all of that is to the good. A number of the other policy interventions that the UK, various governments have made over the years have been very effective. So it starts from a strong position. But yes, changing uh, changing the timeline for things like internal combustion vehicles, some of the other adjustments that have been made on the margin begins to call into question, begins to call into question quite a strong position uh, and draws on some of that capital. You know, one of the dynamics, and I'll stop with this, one of the dynamics that we're seeing over and over again is that if you have credibility on climate policy, it's not just what your policy is today, but what is going to be five years hence or you know, uh, at the end of the decade that drives investment decisions today and makes it easier to make that adjustment in the future. If you start zigging and zagging on climate policy, calling your question, uh, your commitment into some question, you set yourself up for a, a tougher adjustment down the road. And there's the first signs of that in the UK, which is unfortunate, yes. Here's a question you might guess I would ask, because we've had this conversation before. It's never a favourite one for COP attendees, and it's lots of people with important roles like yourself end up flying business class to to get to COP28. I assume that might also mean you, unless you're going to be very squished all the way from Canada. But wouldn't it be better if those who were attending, at least we know people have to fly to get there. It's not possible not to fly, but maybe agreed to kind of take one for the team, so to speak, on in the the battle against climate change and flu economy, given that the carbon footprint is, I think, about estimated up to, shall we say, nine times more in business than economy. You, you fly quite quite fancy business classes. Uh, look, I think the um, I, I think a couple of things. One, uh, sometimes it's necessary to travel to have these agreements. I, I do spend a lot of my climate work and development uh, virtually, uh, certainly much more than uh, uh, than one did in the past. Um, and even uh, over the course of the today, I've visited four continents already uh, in terms of climate discussions. But when you're dealing with 195 countries and a very wide range of stakeholders, you need to be, uh, you, it, 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 you do need to be uh, there. Uh, it, it's important to offset uh, to extent, uh, and part of actually, so part of the work is building up credible offsets. And I think it's important also to keep a sense of the orders of magnitude that we're talking. We're talking about an agreement, the culmination of a series of work that the COP presidency and others, and I'm a small part of that, but part of it, uh, that have been working on that is looking to, you know, take out on the order of 10 to uh, 10 plus percent of global emissions 
uh, in the in the relatively near term, if we're successful, if we're successful. Your roles as UN envoy and in your role for the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, it does mean that you have to coax and cajole big companies and governments towards decarbonising high polluting industries and sectors, shipping, steel, etc. If it makes such good economic sense, and this has always been your calling card about what you're trying to do and, and how you see yourself getting there, why is achieving net zero proving to be so difficult? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is that it will make good economic sense if we as a society value it. We have to value it in order for it to make economic sense. To go back to what we talked about earlier, uh, it does matter that countries like the UK and Canada have net zero as a legislated objective. That is a sign that that is value. Now, that value, that objective the consequence of that is then to have a series of policies that help move towards uh, that uh, that objective. It can be a price on carbon. It can be a prohibition on certain activities after a certain date. It can be a subsidy that helps get us there. It can be all of the above, as well as supplemented by consumer preferences. That's what embeds the value into value in the economy and makes it the largest commercial opportunity, I would argue, in order to deliver on what society wants. And it is a huge mistake. It is a huge mistake to sit and think, this is just going to happen by itself. There are ways to accelerate it and to make uh, the transition benefit as many people as possible today. And certainly they will benefit, you know, our kids and grandkids will benefit tomorrow and and the day after if we get this right. Um, But it's not going to happen on its own. And it's not going to happen, certainly not in the timeline that's necessary. And how do you see the role then and the balance between the way the argument plays out? And sometimes it has retreats and advances in the democracies, or broadly speaking, the democratic compact, and more autocratic countries, particularly given the fact that the world seems to be producing a fair fair amount or unfair amount of authoritarian government at the moment, often hardening positions and more counter to the kind of internationalist view, what used to be called the rules-based order. No one can even really remember what the rules are now. Um, Do you think that is a must be a genuine challenge in terms of your diplomacy at COP? What do you do about China? What do you do about Russia? What do you do about uh, Iran, let alone the partners like Saudi Arabia, who at least are coming to the table, even if we have some disagreements with their system? Yeah, I think, uh, well, it varies. Uh, The level of commitment varies amongst the democracies and amongst the, uh, uh, as you say, authoritarian uh, states. I would observe, uh, you know, the following that, uh, you know, we're in a position which has really only happened over the last three years or so, uh, really spurred by Glasgow, but uh, with follow through, where, you know, 90% 90% of global emissions are covered by net zero uh, commitments by the countries. So that is a very wide system of government that have made those commitments and made those recently. Second thing is that, you know, some of the biggest progress uh, is being made, for example, you, you say China, China is very much at the table, to be absolutely clear. China is at the table in some respects setting the table in terms of the scale of investment that's happening there in real time in clean energy. Um, so it's, I, I'll give you a rough number, which will be broadly right, which is about 40% of the investment in clean energy. So think wind, solar, uh, hydrogen, as well as electric uh, vehicles 
is happening in China. So uh, China moving very rapidly on this. Yes, they are still uh, they still have some investments in coal, and the question is when is that going to peak? That peak is getting a lot closer, uh, but the momentum there uh, is there. And then with respect to finance, where I operate, they are um, they are very engaged in in helping to build up a system that gets capital money, in other words, to where it needs to go uh, to get emissions down. So we asked our audience in advance, as we told them we were excited to be having you on the podcast and what questions they would like to put to the one and only Mark Carney. See if you can guess what the most one of the most popular questions was. No idea. No idea. I bet you. I can't. I can't. You've got a global audience. What uh, this is the reason to come on is to learn from yeah. uh, from political. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. When we do actually learn yeah. every week, and by also hearing what uh, what people are, are interested in, and it is closer to home for you. I think you're talking to us from Toronto today. Justin Trudeau, leader of the Liberal Party, Prime Minister in Canada, heavily trailing in the polls, an election looming next year. If he departs the stage, so writes a correspondent, might Mark Carney be tempted to roll up his? Uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm coming to you from Ottawa uh, today. Um, just to well, I've, that's already a huge so far. <laughs> you go. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister has, uh, I think, every intention of serving uh, serving his term and and uh, and and beyond. And uh, uh, there's various ways for you know for me to serve. I believe in public service and. Uh, and uh, the way I'm serving now is uh, trying to serve is through uh, uh, through this work that we've been uh, we've been discussing uh, because it's critical for critical for Canada and uh, and critical for the world. You recently endorsed the shadow chancellor in the UK, Rachel Reeves's plans at the UK Labour Party's annual conference. That turned some heads. That was a bit of a moment. If Labour wins next year's general election, she uh, asked you to help. Would you do that? I mean, it would mean you would be obviously more politically aligned than I remember you being at least in recent years well I certainly wasn't when I was uh when I was governor um look I um I you mean at the Bank of England when you said yes, governor uh, just, yes, just um, for anyone not not listening in the when, yes, exactly. in the UK doesn't it closely follow my career the um I uh, I was appointed, uh, or at least the governments when I was appointed as uh, governor, uh, both in Canada and the UK, were were conservative governments. Uh, the terminology there, and uh, uh, and uh, there are different stripes. The Liberal government here in Canada, who uh, I, I give advice to from time to time, if asked, and uh, certainly uh, uh, if whatever government in place in the United Kingdom, uh, I would uh, provide advice uh, to if asked if uh, if they felt it was useful. It would be a very different kind of conservative government that would take over in Canada, though it would be slightly worrying, Julie, for some of your concerns about priorities. Yeah, I, I do think it uh, is concerning. Uh, I don't think uh, it's the, the current leader and uh, and the party uh, proceeding. Uh, you'd have to go back to when uh, Brian Mulroney was prime minister, uh, when the Conservative Party last took these issues of climate change seriously. In fact, if if uh, if the lead of uh, Mr. Mulroney had been followed through, uh, Canada and the world would be uh, in, in in a better place. So yes, it's concerning. Uh, this this is uh, in some respects uh, you know a nihilist approach to uh, 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 of of the Conservative Party here to uh, issues around climate change. It's not this, not this, not that, not this, but no apparent plan to uh, address the issue. And I, let me make one other point just to link your earlier. Uh, question about UK policy and what's going on here. I'm a strong believer now that we're in a position where if you are going to take a policy out, you're going to say we're going to stop 
doing clean grid or something like that, or push back the date on internal combustion uh, vehicle adjustments, like in the UK, you're basically putting carbon back in the atmosphere. You're making the problem worse. So you should have to put in place, if you're removing a policy, you should put in place a, another policy that is at least as effective. But the idea of just uh, ripping things out, uh, putting the country in a worse position and leaving the, a worse problem for another day for a subsequent government, uh, you know, that should be called out. We should give you some fun before you go. Things to think about on your, your long journey to COP. We have asked most people who've come on. I've just said fun and the, yeah. the look of sheer alarm that <laughs> shot across Mark Carney's face. I was like, yeah. <laughs> like oh no, idea, don't I'm, worry. I'm not sure we, don't our, we... The Venn diagram of your idea of fun and mine is necessarily overlapping, but okay, let's go. That's, Let's go have fun. That's harsh. Have fun. That's harsh. No, the question we've asked a lot of people uh, who've come on the show is who they would like to hear in the hot seat. Who would you listen to on Power Play? Well, I would have, well, I'll give you two. Uh, I can give you a conventional one. You know, President Macron uh, cuts across just a huge swath of issues from geopolitics to what we've been talking about. But I would, you know, if if you could get uh, the Brazilian finance minister, Vice President uh, Hadash, uh, on uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, super smart, very personable, uh, very effective uh, political operator. And and also on these, you know, Brazil, to state the obvious, critical and critical for climate, critical. They're going to be hosting the G20 next year. To some extent, where Brazil's going will give a pretty and what their priorities are will give a pretty good sense of what some of the world's priorities are going to be. I think they're both very good choices. Noted. I hope we have a small intersection in our idea of fun. What's your idea of fun? What's my idea of fun? Oh, God, that's a good question. My idea of fun would be in um, uh, looking out the window here in Ottawa. There's not quite enough snow on the ground. so uh, But I would, uh, if we can get a bit more, uh, cross-country skiing would be fun. That's this time of year. That's fun. And if you forgive me for some of my questions, you could I can come along with you. Of course, of course, I will. I'm very happy to lead you <laughs> into the woods, into the dark, snowy, frozen it's, woods. It's it's sounding now, very. I might have to come back a little faster than than you. So, but yeah, you can come like, with me. What's Mark Connie oh, going to do when I get lost in the dark woods? Thank you very much. You've been a very good sport. Yeah. Thank you, Mark Connie. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Coming up on Powerplay, our power panel will be here to explore what you've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. 
we're back with our power panel to take stock of my conversation there with Mark Carney. And to do that, we have Zach Coleman, a climate and energy reporter at Politico in Washington, D.C. Hi there, Zach. Hey there. And we're joined also from London by Rachel Kite, visiting professor at the Blavatnik School at Oxford University and co-chair of the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative. Welcome to you as well, Rachel. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, Zach, what did you make of Mark Carney's challenge to the COP28 hosts and the other oil and gas producers to step up at these talks? What do you think he really wants out of it? Well, what you've heard a lot in the media is that this COP is being held in the United Arab Emirates. And there's a lot of criticism over who is running that COP, which is Sultan Al-Jaber. He leads the UAE's national oil company. And for a lot of people, this is like, let's not go here, right? This is a problem. But Mark Carney is clearly taking the other tack, saying, look, if we really want to solve climate change, we have to bring countries like the UAE along and we have to find some space for them because to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive, we've got a long way to go. I mean, sure, China and the US are the two largest emitters in the world, but you can't just get them alone to do all the work. You need every country to see some sort of future for themselves in decarbonization, in addressing climate change. And I think he's taking that challenge head on and seeing a way to make a financial good and an economic good come out of this transition. Rachel, you're an expert in the diplomatic wrangling of climate talks. I spoke to Mark Carney before the revelation that the UAE planned to use its role as the host of the UN climate talks as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals. That was in some leaked documents revealing plans to discuss these deals with 15 nations. Do you think that has undermined the COP president, Sultan al-Jabbar? It was a, a question I put, albeit a different context, to Mark Carney, is this someone who can be really trusted to be an honest broker at this level? So I think all, all year there has been a deep scepticism in parts of the climate world about whether or not Dr. Sultan can hold both jobs at the same time. So be the COP president-elect and be the head of the uh, national oil company, ADNOC. There's no doubting his credentials as an energy guy. He played a founding role in the creation of Mazdar, which is the renewable energy sort of city just outside Abu Dhabi. So he knows renewable energy as well as he knows fossil fuels. But how can you hold both jobs at the same time? He has to negotiate across all countries an agreement to phase out emissions from fossil fuels while at the same time promoting the economic performance of a national oil company. So it's always been dissonant, but I think these revelations that in fact you know they would appear if if these allegations are true to have muddled their commercial diplomacy with their climate diplomacy then i think it's going to make it very difficult for them to uh, rise above and that that's what you have to do as a cop president you're not there to promote your own position as the uae as the cop president your job is to get everybody to be their best selves Zach, what do you think of it about that? Would it be fair to say we could see something of this coming, even if it didn't break out into the open, if it is indeed proved to be the case as the documents suggest? Did you roll your eyes and think, I kind of guess something like this might happen? Yeah, this has been something that everybody sort of suspected was happening behind the scenes. I mean, this was the biggest fear, right? This is the conflict of interest story. I mean, to say that you know, you should create time 
for ADNOC, which is Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, to say their talking points in these meetings for what is supposed to be a COP28 negotiation meeting. I mean, that is crossing a line. That is not what this process is meant to do. So I think this is the biggest fear that skeptics have had. They always suspected it, but you kind of just hoped that that better angels would prevail in this situation. And, And there's a lot of reason to believe the skeptics were right. Well, COP is going to go ahead either way. What prospects are there for advancing climate finance? Zach, what did you make of the way that Mark Carney was pitching his case to me? You'll have heard him speak a lot. I've heard him speak quite a few times and interviewed him quite a few times. Sometimes I feel he shapeshifts in the way that he presents his case and what he thinks can be achieved. What did you hear on this occasion? Okay, I think he's right that we're seeing a lot more investment into clean, but there's still a lot of work to do. I, I think that's where where he maybe was a little bit bright eyed and you know not exactly grounded in where we're at. I mean, to say that you can offset your flight emissions very easily. I mean, that's not exactly true right now. We have some credibility issues with voluntary carbon markets. There's a lot of concerns with carbon credits. And we've used a lot of financial engineering to come up with some sort of uh, way to make people feel better about paying for their climate sins. And that's something that I think we really need to get a handle on before we start unrolling the red carpet for all these other companies saying that they know how to solve climate change. I mean, there's a pretty clear way to do it. You reduce fossil fuel consumption, but that's not exactly what we're talking about in all stripes of this conversation. There's a lot of ways of, of trying to prolong the use of fossil fuels with new technology that prevents the emissions from getting into the atmosphere and baking the planet. There's carbon credits. There's any number of solutions that get talked about when the clearest way is actually to reduce fossil fuel use. So I think if we come up with incentives to do that, and one of the ways in which he did address that was by talking about how do we get to a price on carbon, which in the U.S. is pretty tough to imagine, and we're the second largest emitter in the world. But you know there is this conversation of how do you make it costly for people to emit. Uh, I, I think we've kind of moved beyond that in a lot of respects, and we're talking about how to make it easier to deploy good stuff rather than penalize bad stuff. And you know I think he he definitely covered all the bases here, but I don't see the kind of forward momentum at the pace that it needs to happen. And I think that we need to be honest with that. Rachel Lee was blunt about the G7 no longer being the forum to push for these solutions, at least not to spearhead them. He spoke very favourably about countries like Brazil, the host of next year's COP. Do you think he's right? Can the US and leading European powers no longer be relied on to shift this dial in climate diplomacy? Well, I I think he's right in that the G7 and sort of developed or advanced economies more generally have systematically and repeatedly failed to produce that which they have promised to produce, whether it be climate finance, whether it be a loss and damage fund, whether it be a global vaccine response after the pandemic, whether it be a timely response to indebtedness as more and more countries have struggled with inflation. I mean, you name it. And there is a sort of toxic scepticism in these talks that they will ever produce what they need to produce, which leads to a shift in the conversation, I think, over the last 12 months where you've had 
President Rutu of Kenya at the Africa Climate Summit in September saying, you know, basically Africans are going to do it for themselves. Uh, we, you know, have an abundant source of free, clean energy. Uh, we need to turn that into our ability to produce the goods and services that the world needs. We actually have all the critical minerals as well, or a lot of them. So, you know, don't look at us as a basket case. Look at us as an investment proposition. And of course, that's not new, but it's turning the discussion around, right? We're not going to wait for you. But of course, a large part of the response to climate change is about macroeconomic and fiscal policy. What are we taxing? How are we taxing it? How are we stopping subsidizing things we shouldn't be subsidizing? And uh, that doesn't happen at the COP. That happens in other meetings, the IMF, the World Bank annual meetings. And that's where you get a real hands, you know, sort of under the hood in the engine of the global economy. And that's a world that Mark knows very well. And that's going too slowly as well. So the Paris Agreement is working. It's not working fast enough. Finance isn't flowing where it needs to in the quantities that it needs to. And we have to fix that. And the UAE will stand up and produce funds and collaborations and what we call family photos where, you know, governments and private sector and financial institutions are up on the stage pledging to work together. But we're kind of in a post-pledge COP. We need action. And I think that's the really difficult diplomatic job for the UAE is to get countries to do what countries need to do. Oh, Zach, that point about needing action, Carney clearly feels that China is a key player setting the table, I think was a, a phrase that he used on clean energy. So to that extent, he seemed keener to emphasise that more positive role that China could play than to take the view of the, the critics on, on the emissions that China has been relentlessly pumping out. What do you think the role of the Chinese will be as these talks proceed? Well, they certainly are deploying a lot of clean energy and they're producing a lot of electric vehicles that are now starting to get sold at cut rate rates uh, that is going to start drawing a lot of scrutiny from other countries that they are exporting them to. So, uh, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that China can do is try to raise the ambition of the other countries that it is often aligned with. In the COP process, every country has equal weight and you need to move by consensus. So if China is willing to be more ambitious on what it can commit to in terms of any number of these thorny agreements, whether it's on phasing down coal, which it uses more than uh, any other country, I believe. And if it can get a more positive forward momentum at the end of the COP on, on how countries address emissions for their next round of climate commitments, which are due in two years, uh, if it can come up with some sort of positive statement on loss and damage fund, which is the fund that was created last year at COP Talks in Sharm el-Sheikh, which would pay for irreversible climate loss and damage in the developing world. There's any number of ways in which China can help unstick some of these complicated issues by also bringing along other countries that have been obstacles in these talks, such as Saudi Arabia, Russia. I mean, if you can start to isolate Russia and Saudi Arabia on some key issues because China has decided to move more in a climate positive direction, that can actually be a huge boon to the talks as well. Rachel, what to you would look like a good result, given the teething troubles of this particular 
COP and given the general state of the world, as Zach was referring there to that difficult task of getting democracies and, shall we say, sort of centre lefties on climate change to work together in concert with autocracies or indeed with a Western democratic politics, which is many ways is moving or even lurching rightwards. How bridgeable do you think those gaps are? And they're not completely bridgeable at this COP, but I think progress would look like a collective agreement to not run away from the stock take. The stock take is this report that comes into the COP that says that we're not on track. That requires countries to sort of say, look, we're going to phase out fossil fuels and their emissions. Progress would be an agreement to work on a binding agreement to get rid of methane emissions very, very quickly because that would buy you uh, half a degree of warming quickly. So there's lots of people have pledged uh, China's uh, on the edges of sort of committing. But can the UEE bring the fossil fuel industry to the table in a meaningful way? around an agreement to work on on methane beyond just a pledge. Some finance, uh, the tripling of renewable energy, doubling of energy efficiency, which has been what they've been working on so diligently. But what does that really mean in terms of implementation? And then finally, I think this has to be the last COP of this size and scope. We need to be working on a continual basis. I'm not sure that many countries can afford to uh, host the kind of jamboree as well as the negotiations which cops have turned into and so i think uh, this needs to be a moment when we look at ourselves and work out how to take the work forward that's an interesting thought there's that from from rachel cops have got too big yeah they're their own worst enemy like the eurovision song contest <laughs> put rachel in charge of the cop then i i fully endorse that thanks to both of my sustainably generated power panelists like zach thank you very much And to Rachel. Thank you so much. Who seems to be the candidate for running next year's COP. Well, whether or not that works out, do be sure to join us next week for a special edition of Powerplay, taking in all the action from the climate talks in Dubai. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to follow Powerplay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get in touch directly with our team from wherever you are, you can email us, powerplay at politico.eu. The producer in London is Peter Snowden. And from Brussels this week, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Do join us next week at COP for another edition of Powerplay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.